Hey, hey, I am back today to talk about Slavoj Zizek's first as farce, then as tragedy, which is, in my mind, a pretty good introduction to what Zizek is all about. And what I mean by that is that it's not too heavy in the psychoanalytic and Marxist theory that could be quite alienating, that is, if you don't have a, have a firm uh, grasp of it already. So it's a fairly good introduction. Now, before jumping into that, if you're new here, hey, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts in a somewhat accessible way to save you from having to necessarily read them if you don't have the time, uh, or to help you understand it if you're trying to get through it. Now, with that being said, I am by no means uh, the be-all, end-all expert, 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 expert in this stuff, so take anything I say with a grain of salt, and the best thing to do would be to actually read the book. Now, if you're new here, like, share, subscribe. That would help me out a lot. If you aren't new here, like, share, subscribe. That would help me out a lot. If you want to follow me, you can do that on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy to see mostly pictures of my cats. If you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon. If you're listening to this on YouTube, you can find it in podcast form on pretty much anywhere you get podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads. And if you're listening to this in a podcast form, you can check it out on YouTube where sometimes I do videos if you're interested in that. So don't waste any more of your time with that stuff. Let's talk about Zizek. So this title, First as Farce, uh, Then as Tragedy, comes from Marx's, Karl Marx's recounting uh, Hegel's claim that all events occur twice. First to kind of um, as a tragedy and then as a farce. That is when something happens, it's bad, but if it happens again, there's a there's a joking component to it. That is, it's funny. So as for the book itself, it's very aphoristic. Now, what aphoristic means is that it's kind of disjointed. It doesn't follow a kind of clear narrative. And Zizek is almost from paragraph to paragraph discussing new things in relation to the broad problem. That is, how do we confront uh, globalized capitalism or capitalism at all uh, today? So with that being said, it makes it somewhat difficult to present this book because I can't just present everything that Zizek goes into because that would take too long and I may as well just be reading it out to you. So my approach instead will be to kind of give you the broad strokes of what's going on here with my own criticisms of Zizek, which I should point out at first because I know I'm going to annoy some people. I'm going to be very hard on Zizek here. Now, I want to preface this by saying that I know that this text is not quintessential Zizek and that he goes into a lot more detail in a lot of his other texts. But with that being said, he makes some claims here that need to be addressed head on. And no better place to start than the introduction titled The Lessons of the First Decade. So setting the tone here, he dissuades any reactionaries from reading this book because it's um you know it's a pretty anti-capitalist book and if someone wants to take from this any sort of uh defense of capitalism they will be sorely disappointed but the kind of event that Zizek is imagining this book through is the fallout or 9-11 and its fallout Specifically, he's thinking about the kind of situation we find ourselves in following 9-11, where there is this effort to kind of reclaim an idea about American exceptionalism, which dovetails with ideas about liberty, while at the same time suspending those liberties, especially for uh, brown, non-white Americans, you know, people who are just subject to 
serious uh, harms by the general public and uh, incarcerated for no reason, uh, you know, subject to arbitrary, um, more stringent uh, surveillance practices like in airports and stuff like that, that demonstrated a loss of liberties for Americans. And then how this extends to the general public with stuff like the Patriot Act or just a general increase in surveillance and policing. So that kind of sets the tone here. But the real interest for Zizek is the 2008 financial crisis and what that means for capitalism and what it means for the future of uh, humanity. So as for the title, that is first as farce, then as tragedy, uh, for Marx, as I kind of alluded to at the beginning, Germany's ancien regime which was the ancient uh, regime or the old regime, that its decay was a farcical repetition of France's tragic decay. So we call upon the past in this way as a kind of farcical way to cope with the sting of its original death. So in the case of the German uh, old regime, it was only they who were convinced of its reality as a legitimate unique period, even though it wasn't real. So its collapse was really... A non-real thing either. So it was a kind of joke, that is, as it happened. Now looking to today, Zizek ponders the existence of people, who he calls cynics here, uh, kind of liberal cynics, who claim not to belong to any kind of real order. You know, they don't see any meaning in the world. And Zizek is like, no, your life has a lot of meaning, and that meaning is determined very much by ideology. And ideology is what determines you even in your capacity to say no to meaning. But what is more, this ideological framework, one that is very clearly a capitalist one, is growing ever more private and exclusive. Whereas in the case of the fall of like the Berlin Wall, uh, it was meant to be a great opening of all domains, a kind of opening of the world. What we're seeing with this kind of neoliberal turn within capitalism or this kind of neoliberal turn that's been going on for about 40 years is a closing off of specific zones that is becoming more and more private despite the promise of globalized capitalism to make the world more open, to make it more accessible. Now, he says that this was kind of potentiated by 9-11 in which more secrecy emerged, more uh, calls for uh, privatization, which like there might be some truth to that but this trend obviously antedates it comes before uh 911 but the great irony in all this is exactly how there is a claim to a kind of neoliberal humanism with this uh with these with this ideology that gives us this sense that we are becoming more open when in fact there are all these borders being erected and we can certainly see that with the rhetoric that came out of the United States government a few years ago, up till now, I guess, with the insistence on building a you know, physical wall, for example. Now for Zizek, the solution is concerningly easy, uh, and that is it is a communist solution to this problem, but we're going to nuance this as we go. That is, he says, and we're still within the introduction here, that this book has a communist trajectory. Communism is the end point. So he endeavors to look at today through a communist lens rather than diagnosing today as any different from yesterday, uh, as a, like 
you know, people might say, oh, we are in the post-modern age or the information age or post-industrial age or whatever. And how these different lenses or these different approaches kind of frame the problem as having moved away from Marx, whereas Zizek wants to bring it back to Marx and to ask, how can we use Marx today? And what does communism mean today? And how can communism actually solve a lot of the problems that we are confronted with? And what I will say now is that Zizek treats communism as a panacea, or panchia, which is a cure-all, uh, which in fact it is not. But he is giving us this um, this idea here is certainly an ambitious one, but we'll see how it how it goes. So this demands a kind of assault against capitalism and capitalist ideology. And this isn't done for Zizek with a kind of direct conflict of people like taking arms up against their capitalist overlords, but instead, in his words, it happens with patient, ideological, critical work. And that here closes off the introduction into chapter one, titled, It's, it's Ideology, Stupid. I don't know why I messed that up. Am I even saying words anymore? What is wrong with me? So first, Zizek, or maybe I should say this, this book is divided into two broad chapters. The first one, it's ideology, stupid, discusses the problem at hand, and that is the problem with advanced capitalism. And then the second chapter explores some of the possible remedies and the historical strategies to cope with it and to challenge capitalism. So for Zizek, given the widespread concerns about the expansion of fictional money, what might also be called like speculative capital, and if you, if anyone is curious about this and want a kind of easy way to have a basic introduction to it. The film *The Big Short* with Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling and a bunch of a bunch of dudes uh, really explores this problem well. But he's concerned with this expansion of fictional capital and uh, speculative capital. But in all of this, he was quite surprised, given its expansion, that other people were surprised about what happened in 2008, and that is the financial crash. Zizek is, you know, he's like. How, how are you surprised about this? This is exactly what was going to happen. More and more money was based off of less and less reality, so to speak. It was based more and more upon speculation, upon subprime uh, lending that wasn't ever going to be returned. It wasn't ever going to be paid back. So how could that possibly sustain itself? Which is, and I think that there might be a bit of a tendency to see this as being derivative of capitalism as though it's a kind of bastardized form of capitalism or a kind of um, mutation of it when in fact it is absolutely endemic to capitalism and to ideas about surplus value that extract more than is put into the system as in the case of labor there's more taken out of laborers than there are is put into labor now that's just me so we're dealing with the same situation here so we are in some ways helpless to this situation. And one reason for that is its unpredictability. That is the market's unpredictability. It's very difficult to try and master it, which is kind of a tricky, slippery word to use, but it, it's, it is beyond our control. And even the greatest economists don't know what the market is going to do. At best, they can project or project forecast how people are going to respond to the market that will have some effect on it. So if they think there's going to be some kind of recession or if there's like an election coming up, 
they can predict how people are going to react. Are they going to pump more money into the stock market, which is going to see it grow? Are they going to take money out? So on and so forth. So in response to the crash, Zizek takes the perspective or takes the stance that we were way too quick to bail out the bankers, which is for him, you know, obviously not a great thing because it gives uh, the people who committed the crimes, essentially, who were um, kind of more morally dubious, it gives them uh, a carte blanche to kind of keep going at the expense of the taxpayers. So the $700 billion that was spent on the market may have been necessary. And Zizek isn't totally uh, ignorant of the fact that it had to happen lest people were just going to die because they wouldn't be able to eat. But he's very suspicious about it. And he's very curious as to why that we live in a world in which that is something that can take place. Now, somewhat ironically, Republicans were opposed to bailing out the lenders because they believe this to be a robbery of the American people who they, they really thought they were standing up for or representing. So that was a big problem in that you had the Democrats under Obama giving out this bailout to these millionaires and billionaires, and Republicans were saying that that's not a great idea, which doesn't really seem to fit within the, the narrative today or how we might understand the treatment of billionaires, at least in terms of the left-right spectrum in, in the political sense, in the United States. But even more ironically, the Republicans called it a socialist bailout, as though it was a way to just help the super-rich, which is something we certainly can hear today if anyone listens to any uh, mass media coming out of the United States. It's that Democrats are socialists because they want to help out corporations or big tech. And it just, it's a very confusing thing to hear because that is the exact opposite of what socialism is. But in any case, this confuses uh, Zizek because he's like, well, how, how, how is that a socialist thing to do? These Democrats are not socialists, which Zizek is obviously, doesn't like to hear that because he knows what socialism is. But what is even more ironic is the fact that these are the same people, these same Republicans who believe firmly in the idea of trickle-down economics, that by making the rich richer, that money will trickle down to help the poor. So he was even more confused as to why they were opposed to it. And then in response, there were calls by Republicans to essentially, uh, for, for the United States to move back to a kind of real economy to move away from a fictional economy based on speculative capital back to like producing things but given all these kind of strange beliefs and these kind of strange reversals of opinion Zizek says that the democrat move to bail out the big banks to bail out the billionaires was actually a great way to help the lower class and that is because in the world we live in today if the rich suffer the poor suffer which makes no sense, because if the poor suffer, the rich don't suffer. In fact, the rich actually benefit. So because this is the world in which we live, Zizek sort of applauds the Democrats, but we're going to criticize, like, that's not exactly what he says, to say that they had to do it because that's how messed up our world is, and which is why the Democrat solution to any kind of Republican strategy is really only a centrist move in itself, in that it doesn't actually tackle the problems at hand the 
macroscopular, the macroeconomic, the macro problems that we are confronted with under advanced capitalism. And of course, one of the false monikers that we are sold about this thing called capitalism is the idea of the free market that the Republicans want wanted to maintain. And they saw by giving out uh, money to these billionaires, it would increase the deficit, it would essentially slant the playing field in favor of billionaires, wasn't a move for the free market. It wasn't the demonstration of free market economics. And Zizek is obviously suspicious of this when he recognizes quite accurately that most of these politicians only got their position because they worked with various lobbyists, they promised various things to various rich people. And that demonstrates that, you know, these market, the so-called free market isn't really free at all. And it is very much helped by politicians who are going to themselves then benefit either in the form of dark money or, you know, getting more chances for re-election or whatever. So rather than throwing the $700 billion at the situation, Zizek demanded us to sit and think, to think about it, because either case, either withholding the money or giving it as it happened, demonstrates some kind of a um, commitment to the system at hand rather than uh, any kind of reform or any kind of revolution of the system, which isn't what these people were trying to do. Most of these people were just trying to respond and react to a situation that was dire, that is following 2008. And this is why so many responses, that is immediate responses to crises, can also so easily be either racist or populist. That is, they try to turn to tradition, they try to turn to what, what, what is, feels real, in response to what is quite chaotic and what is quite unpredictable. And with this, he turns to the idea proposed by Naomi Klein that crises are good for capitalism. And it's not just Klein that says this. We find examples of this in Marx as well, where capitalism constantly potentiates the crises that will give it more strength, that will give it more uh, kind of momentum. But the really amazing thing in all of this is that capitalism is treated as though, as I kind of already said, as something that is free. And the freedom that is associated with it then comes to take on the status of being somewhat natural. And I've heard this argument way more times than I would like. And that is that capitalism reflects human nature because it is based on competition and humans are naturally competitive. And the only real necessary uh, kind of response to that is that capitalism is a very new invention in the course of human history. And it seems strange that if it's a natural occurrence, that it only emerged some 60,000 years after humans became what we now know to be humans. And so this gives it a kind of special status. Now back Flat, jump back 30, 40 years when conversations about socialism and state socialism and communism were kind of at their peak, that is with the Soviet Union and Cuba, what we were hearing a lot was that socialism is something that can't be natural because it needs to have like state regulation and has to be monitored. Now, we don't say that with capitalism, even following a serious financial crisis that demands essentially a parental bailout that is by the government instead we say that oh well it's 
perhaps a necessary consequence. Like this is something that has to happen. When Zizek, all he's trying to do is demonstrate that no, this is the ideological pill we have been given to believe that it is natural and to then make it transparent because that's what ideology is. It is essentially to us what fish is, what water is to a fish, what fish is to water. And then to kind of maintain this ideological illusion, which is a kind of redundant thing to say, but this ideology, we consume ultra pro-capitalist things like Ayn Rand, who has a strange following even today, like a strangely strong following today, which is which is strange. I don't know why I'm so caught up on that. Uh, or other kind of uh, pro-capitalist propaganda that essentially feeds us the idea that it is the best of all possible systems. Of course, that fails to mention that the biggest economy in the world, very much coming up to what America is capable of, is communist China. At least that is if we believe what the conservatives in the United States have to say about China being a communist country. It seems like communism is a lot more effective at doing what capitalism claims to be best at which isn't an endorsement. I don't want to live in communist China, and nor do I think that it is a good place. But we have to recognize that if we're measuring uh, worth, measuring value based off of one's economic capacity and the capacity to de develop as a superpower, capitalism does not hold a monopoly on that position. And what also is quite amazing about this situation is just that the horrors of capitalism are very much clear to us like we know what sweatshop labor is and we know how it is the direct result of capitalism and we know how colonization was very much motivated by the desire to extract resources for the sake of profit we very much know how all of these things were potentiated by capital not to mention the ecological crisis uh big ag like n none of that stuff like what is in my mind worse in terms of like the treatment of human bodies what we are seeing is just a complete uh, willing ignorance of those elements of it to the point that it's it's almost haunting that we can continue to sell this idea to the point that we don't even think about basic reform like the most basic elementary things that acknowledge that there is a problem and we don't even we are not prepared to have that conversation lest we be called like you know a communist or socialist or whatever or to make it a little bit more relevant in the case of big tech that is very much in uh the kind of open dialogue today in the united states with section 230 it's really quite remarkable how these same people can vie, can kind of struggle for an idea about free market capitalism, yet be opposed to that market operating in the way that it has to form these kind of tech monopolies, because that is what the free market will always tend towards, uh, a kind of full-fledged monopoly or oligopoly that will stifle and make competition almost virtually impossible. Now, not a lot of people, I guess, or maybe everyone knows this, I don't know, but we might be seeing a severe challenge to that, at least in, in the United States by China, because these companies cannot actually enter China because China has a very profoundly impressive 
kind of firewall system that doesn't allow uh, American or Western companies, that is these tech companies, to enter. But they can export their things out. And this is why there was the, all that fear about, you know, TikTok being a way for China to take um, take information from Americans. But in any case, what we are seeing is the rise of a challenge to this system at hand, which is kind of growing. It's coming. It's on the horizon. But in any case, what we are still presented with is the result of laissez-faire, of free market capitalism, which is what these Republicans should recognize and they should acknowledge that their efforts to stifle uh, tech growth is a communist, that's drastic, let's say it's a socialist strategy, that is it, it is the government intervening in the growth of a company. So with this growing kind of tech, the big tech, we have growing militarization, what we are seeing for Zizek, and he uses a gombin, that is Giorgio Agamben's idea about the state of exception, which is when, um, I haven't done a gombin on this channel actually, but I should, I should. It is the idea that at a point, it is a point when laws are suspended so that military rule can kind of take over and suspend people's rights and, and all that. Um, we are kind of inching towards that moment with various homo sacers who are kind of sacred sacred humans but they aren't sacred in that they are exalted they are sacred in that they can be killed essentially with like with impunity but anyways that that is the situation we're driving towards and i'm sorry that i brought that up because it might have made it more confusing but yeah that's kind of what a gombin's on about but in the case of like these homo sacers these kind of sacred humans that are treated with violence what we are seeing instead is not like them being treated with physical violence. We still, we just have like kind of racism that is directed against the so-called other, the person that doesn't exist within this, this framework. So this is all meant to kind of maintain the idea that um, we are within a system that is benevolent and that it is only like humans on an individual level that are operating in a negative way instead of it being an entire ideological framework that motivates these kinds of uh, forms of hatred, for example, which makes us lose sight of the um, kind of oncoming militarism of monopolies, of big tech, of all these different um, emerging horrors. And he says, and I, I hate this, but he, he's like, and we can't forget that it was the communists who were most opposed to segregation when it's like and slavery. And it's like, no, I think I think black people were the most against um, slavery and segregation, not these white communists. But that and to go on a little bit of a tangent, that is the a problem with the way that uh, kind of solutions are framed as being like the the struggle of whiteness to fix the world's problems the kind of um, white savior complex as though the people who are being saved aren't actually people and this comes down to the language of slavery too where s enslaved people are just considered slaves like we just take out the people and that is all they are in that moment and in our discourse around their um, emancipation what we are doing is kind of replicating the very logic of their subjugation in the form of them not even entering the conversation. So when he says that it's 
uh, it was the communists who were most opposed to slavery. He is erasing the fact that it was the black people who were most opposed to slavery. But yeah, sorry, I digress. So he, then he goes on to a brief little uh, detour through psychoanalysis, and I don't want to go into that too much because it's kind of complicated and it would just take us uh, too far astray. But he says that essentially with a Lacanian uh, tone here that we often don't mean what we say. So behind the words we say is often the true meaning and the goal of the psychoanalyst is to kind of reveal that true meaning to some extent or to allow the person to reveal it to themselves. So for him, we don't essentially mean what we say. So he gives the example of the way that um, anti-Semitic people blame like Jewish people for their economic struggles, whereas Zizek wants to say, no, it's capitalism, like not Jewish people. But the problem with this is that it fails to acknowledge that in this case, like in the case of anti-Semitism, the uh, violence of anti-Semitism and the violence inflicted on Jewish people far predates the emergence of capitalism by millennia. And so we cannot say that these people seek, just hate capitalism because this hatred of Jewish people extends much deeper and extends back much further than capitalism. But in any case, that's you get what he's saying here. So after having sufficiently set the tone for the problems at hand, he moves now into the second chapter, the communist hypothesis, kind of laying out what he hopes to do or what he hopes the solution will be to this problem. So the goal is for him to invigorate a communist idea, not necessarily as a progressive one, as though it's like something we'll just steadily arrive to, but one that is going to hit roadblocks enough to start from the beginning and, and uh, confront all of these various crises and collisions to just to kind of move itself forward ad infinitum, that is forever. And this strategy is one that also just kind of waits, lurks in the shadows for the system to malfunction, and it can then sneak in and reorganize it in that way or at that point. So then given the various problems that we are confronted with with capitalism, be it uh, the looming ecological crisis, if, we're, if we can even say it's looming and that we aren't right in it, uh, the friction between notions of the private of private and intellectual property, uh, problems of new techno scientific developments, new forms and new forms of apartheid, we have to wonder whether or not we have to just let capitalism run its course and deal with its own antagonisms, or if it's something that should be taken head on. And I'm going to, you know, kind of spoiler alert: Zizek doesn't give us an answer to this because he just doesn't. Uh, so we are just left with this this problem here. And that this really is a problem that goes back to Marx in that Marx and Engels were very clear that capitalism is a necessary thing and you cannot uh, catalyze, you cannot move it too quickly to arrive to communism. That is, you can't force communism to emerge. That would be wrong and that would lead to dictatorships to uh, totalitarianism. In fact, there were a number of criteria that had to be met before communism could be achieved. One of them was you needed everyone to be literate. You needed everyone to have a profound knowledge, essentially, of science, math, whatever. You needed people to essentially move away from religion 
tradition, patriarchy, to move away from anything that would give them, uh, that would keep them tethered to the land, for example. And only once those criteria have been met, could the move or the move to communism would essentially just happen in the final movement of the workers' struggle or the workers' revolt. But these workers today, and this really reveals or this has been taken up by a number of different people, aren't the same workers that Marx was writing about. In very many ways, the kinds of workers that we are presented with today are substanceless. Uh, and this isn't saying anything about these people at all. But it's just the way that uh, the new kinds of labor inflict a new kind of alienation on people that is so much more different than the way that Marx had confronted them, had he himself been a part of. Not to mention the fact that workers are pretty much helpless against nuclear weapons. It's very difficult to imagine something like a communist revolution against governments that possess nuclear weapons and the kinds of military armaments that were unthinkable uh, 200, 150 years ago. So once we consider all these things, it becomes a little bit tricky to imagine this move to uh, communism. And this is why I think in part Zizek is so careful. He doesn't want to just give this solution. But what he is clear about is that he doesn't want to advocate, he's not advocating here for socialism because socialism is just a reformist strategy that is, you know, used by Nordic countries. And as I, um, I don't know, I just watched this TikTok and I don't remember the person's name, this, this woman, God, and I don't want to take her stuff because I, I, it's probably her own idea, but Anyways, the Nordic countries are not great, and this, this TikTok really explained it well. So we are moving towards, for him, communism, or should be moving towards that, and not socialism, which is just a kind of reformist attitude that will keep exploitation going. And workers, even under socialism, are going to be reduced to the same kind of substancelessness that he's describing here. And he, he says this to kind of poke at uh, Michel Foucault. So if you don't know... One of Foucault's central theses is that people are controlled by being seen. They see one another. They are being seen by uh, figures of authority that can then regulate and control their actions and the way they work and to essentially make them more productive. Now, Zizek contrasts this with the work of Badiou to say that these workers, these substanceless proletarian workers, aren't actually visible. They are reduced to non-site. They are, are almost not even existent in this world. And so, like in the case of dreams, what is unseen often reveals a lot about what we see in the day-to-day. -day -day. So when we are confronted with the realities of labor, of alienation, then suddenly we get a broader picture of the situation we find ourselves in, in the day-to-day. -day. And then he goes on about how, like, Obama's, uh, becoming president in 2008 wasn't really a significant thing despite the fact that he was a black president or it was he, he does concede that it was absolutely a significant thing but he says that it doesn't really matter because he's just a you know liberal centrist uh, who isn't actually going to do anything to bring upon communism which is Zizek's criterion if you are not working towards communism you may as well um, or as he calls someone toward the end of his book you may as well be an idiot like you're not doing anything good 
Now, this is when Zizek goes, it becomes really fun. Uh, and that is he goes to criticize, of course, political correctness to say that white men's burden, what was historically called the white man's burden, has transformed into the white man's guilt. So the white man's burden, for those that aren't familiar, was the idea that it was um, it was the onus of white people to civilize the world and to make the world proper. Now that has transformed to him into the idea of the white man's guilt, the feeling of, the feeling of guilt that white people have for their the actions of their ancestors, for colonization, for uh, segregation, for racism, for residential schools. He's like, yeah, you can forget about that. Not important. Uh, we'll just move on because that that that's in the past. We have to be focused now on getting over these fake differences to then now focus on the fact that we are all joined under a common struggle against communism or sorry, against capitalism. But interestingly, he's okay with it when Marx criticizes colonization for some reason. Like that kind of guilt is okay because in Zizek's words, British colonization of India created the conditions for the double liberation of India from the constraints of its own tradition as well as from colonization itself. So let me just read that again. British colonization of India created the conditions for the double liberation of India from both the constraints of its own tradition as well as from colonization itself. This is him, of course, defending colonization as being a way to liberate what I'm assuming he's saying as the uh, kind of tradition struck primitive ideas of India from itself into newness. Now, of course, Zizek is being a, an idiot, uh, and this is not something that we can really condone because colonization is not something that's condonable, even though in a lot of these cases, these people were um, essentially practicing what Marx had in mind. And he gives the example of, or back in like Marx's day of the I think it's the man in Jamaica that, you know, fishes in the morning and, you know, does nothing in the afternoon. And Marx is taking that to be the example of like the way that uh, we should live. But what I'm suspicious about is this insistence of this move away from tradition, because it seems to me like it is less a desire to move away from tradition and more a desire to make some people move away from tradition while keeping other people in their own privileged position. Because I don't see the same defense mounted by Zizek here, at least he, in this book, he might have said it somewhere else, of the attacks on 9-11 as being a, an attack against uh, American tradition. And it's like, oh, thank God, we were, we've been liberated from this idea of global financial capitalism, or at least there was that effort to do that. Uh, so therefore, that was a really great thing. And we should really, um, we should really join in with this effort by, in that case, you know, of course, Al Qaeda and the Taliban to get rid of this American tradition. And these traditions we cling so heavily onto. We don't hear that from Zizek. We hear it about uh, brown people and how brown people should give up their tradition to become, I'm assuming, I don't even know what, like, what does that mean to get rid of tradition? What is left over? And this, for me, really colors my disdain for uh, these kinds of efforts. 
in that I ask, uh, or of which I ask, what will remain once communism has arrived? What will education look like? Are we going to learn about traditional indigenous hunting practices? Are we going to learn about um, Chinese medicine? Are we going to learn about, I don't know, Catholic ideas about morality? What are we going to learn? What are we going to be uh, kind of given in hospitals? If the answer to those questions is essentially giving white answers, giving Western answers, that we are going to be essentially given uh, or taught about, you know, Shakespeare and Chaucer and, and taught about Galileo. What does that mean for the communist goal? What is it going to arrive at? Is it going to be a radical egalitarianism or is it just going to be a replication of the very systems we've, we are currently entrenched in? So there's little wonder then why Marx and Marxism has been criticized as being Eurocentric, because it just seems like this end result is just going to reflect Western values or European values. But I digress. Moving from there, Zizek then takes aim at uh, illegal immigrants trying to gain status, where he's like, what that's doing is essentially only entering people into the kind of bureaucratic regime of uh, citizenship, which is just meant to kind of control people and to keep tabs on people. When it, for most of these people, it's a matter of surviving or making a, some kind of livelihood for their children. And it seems weird for someone with a great deal of uh, prestige and status to deny people that or to criticize it as being not a real revolutionary move because they're, you know, just trying to feed their families. Uh, but because they're not working for the communist goal, then they are doing something wrong. Now, to be more generous to Zizek, because I just don't like this book, <laughs> he recognizes that part of the goal will be, of course, to upend uh, white centrism, to destabilize the monopoly that white Europeans have on the production of knowledge, I guess, or in their uh, capacity to monopolize on power. But that, of course, begs a certain question. Well, how much of this communist struggle is going to be um, kind of colored by these now, as he just laid it out, these kind of racial tensions as well that antedate capitalism itself? So it seems to me like then he's presenting a new problem, and that is the problem between like white superiority that very much comes before capitalism. But that is, in any case, we can't we can't ask him because we you just have the book here. So essentially, moving on, and I'm sure I've annoyed enough people. He lays out the goal, just as Marx does, for a kind of overturning of this idea of the state that we currently have and that is the idea of the state working in favor of capital so the state is a kind of uh, character in the capitalist play that keeps it going now what marx does is he overturns that and says that the state will actually become a state run by the dictatorship of the proletarian so that'll essentially mean that there won't be oppression for marx because the proletarian make up 99.9% .9 of the population. So what we will see is this kind of democratic move where everyone will be 
equal in that uh, overturning, leaving only a few to be um, at the bottom, but they will then be reintegrated back in. But unlike in Marx's day, Zizek recognizes that the state isn't quite as static, it isn't quite as still as it, as it, as it once was. In fact, it's always moving, it's, it's changing, it's developing, it's mutating, just alongside capitalism that is always mutating and changing as well. So in order to kind of resist it, it has to, or we have to kind of accommodate these changes and adapt to them as well. But we have to do this with a certain proximity to it. So in his words, to resist by withdrawing to a position of distance from the state is false. Like we can't just get take ourselves out of it. And that would be wrong, just as he thinks that we can't get outside ideology, despite, you know, claims that, oh, it's just about getting outside, outside of ideology, which essentially explains as well his animosity for democracy, because democracy only reflects the kind of dominant ideological framework. It doesn't actually represent truth, so to speak. And so under this order, whereas democracy would demand uh, differences in opinion, what we are seeing is instead a kind of um, ironing out of differences in favor of a kind of uh, homogenized playing field. And part of this, he says, was the result of this 1968 uh, students movement and kind of uh, resistive movements of the time in which there emerged a kind of more effective capitalism, not a challenge against it. So while there may have been a move from traditional labor and traditional education and the traditional family to things like, oh, let's dissolve the differences between like managers and workers or, you know, let's make uh, teachers and students like friends with one another. And what we saw then was just uh, a more smoothing, smoothing, a, a smoother operating capitalist system that gave the semblance of liberation. It gave the semblance of uh, equality. So, in, with all that being said, hegemony doesn't work in the same way. Like, either since, since that time or since way before, since Marx's time. And so it demands new strategies that are prepared to take on new different forms and to confront, as we said earlier, these various possible crises that will, they will hurt a lot, but they will be necessary. So he gives us an image here. He's like, communism is not the light at the end of the tunnel that light that we're seeing is actually another train coming right at us that's going to collide with us and then screw everything up and our job is to recognize the inevitability of this crash and it's certainly looming like another financial crash crash is just around the corner there's there's no denying it maybe maybe covid slowed it down because there's less lending i assume maybe I don't know, less people can pay. I have no idea. I'm not an economist, but we know that this next crash is coming and that we must be prepared for it. And then he ends the book by saying that he turns to Deleuze uh, and how Deleuze, when Deleuze died, he was working on a book uh, about Marx. And Zizek uses that as an illustration to how we are all, we should all turn to Marx or we will all turn to Marx in our final days which is obviously good. Marx was a Marx was a great thinker for sure. Uh, and he gives us a lot in how we can understand this situation. But given the things I've said, and I'm sure I annoyed a lot of you, uh, I am very skeptical about this project, partly because this book, I think, I 
I don't know for sure, but I feel like some publishers were like, hey, you want to make a lot of money? Just write this thing and then and then it'll be good to go. I mean, he didn't see any problem making a bunch of money debating that charlatan uh, as a big spectacular thing against everything political correctness, um, which was a big joke and made me lose all credibility or I never had credibility, lose all respect, any little I had for Zizek in that moment. Um, but yeah, so that's what we have here. Despite me being unfair, I think Zizek has a lot of good points. Uh, and I'd like to hear what anyone else has to say. If you like what I did here, you know, you can like it. If you didn't, you can dislike it. I don't care. You can leave a comment. Um, I have been trying to keep up with responding to comments, but there's so many of them that it's hard uh, for me to, um, I delete comments that are um, violent or racist or homophobic or sexist. So that's just putting that out there. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to hear anything that you might have to say about this. If there's just more to Zizek in one of his other texts that could give this a little bit more steam that, than, than I'm reading in it. But in any case, yeah, catch you next time.